Hello again, and welcome back to The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America, where each week we bring you a new interview with one of Hollywood's top directors conducted by one of their peers. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or our SoundCloud page at soundcloud.com slash The Director's Cut. This episode takes us behind the scenes of director Todd Haynes' film, Carol. Based on the Patricia Highsmith novel entitled The Price of Salt, the adaptation follows the love affair between the unhappily married Carol and young department store clerk, Therese. As Carol seeks to free herself from the shackles of her marriage, her husband begins to question her competence as a mother after her new relationship comes to light. The critically acclaimed drama received six Academy Award nominations this year including Best Actress and Best Supporting Actress nods for stars Kate Blanchett and Rooney Mara, and a Best Adapted Screenplay nomination for screenwriter Phyllis Naj. Following the Los Angeles screening of Carol, Mr. Haynes spoke with director Kelly Reichardt about making the film, the decision behind casting Blanchett and Mara in the lead roles, and much more. Listen on for highlights from their conversation, recorded in November at the DGA Theater. Hi, Todd. Hi, Kel. <laughs> Thank you for uh, doing this, Kelly. Sure. Gosh. Um, I'll just get us started, and then we'll um, see if you all have some questions. I was just working with um, Leslie Schatz today, who is the um, uh, sound designer on the film. And um, I, I was asking Leslie, what should I ask Todd first? <laughs> and he said, ask him, Todd, why are you so great? <laughs> I said, okay, Todd. <laughs> um, so I was trying to think of questions I don't know the answer to. And um, I guess uh, I was wondering when you first read The Price of Salt, did you read it in your youth? No, I didn't read it. Um, until it came to me. I didn't know about it. Oh. <clears throat> um, and I'd heard about the project from Sandy Powell, um, probably a ye- maybe a, a year or less before they were looking for a director for it again. Uh, and I don't really know about the whole backstory <laughs> of the movie. Um, except that I knew that Kate Blanchett was attached. Sandy Powell is the costume designer and I work with her. Uh, twice before Carol, and uh, she mentioned this project, and she said it was based on a Patricia Highsmith novel, her second novel, which was a lesbian love story, and I didn't know that that even existed. Um, but it all came to me around May of 2013, Phyllis Naja's script at that, where it was at that stage, and the novel, and I went and took it all to the Oregon coast, I live in Portland, and uh, read... I think I read the novel first, and then I read the script. <clears throat> but since Kate was attached, I was just seeing Carol already, of course. You know, how could you not? Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, it seemed like a, I don't know, it seems like a book you could have read before making many of your films, right? So is Price Assault, is it, does it have a meaning, or is it, um, what's the oh, code in there? Uh, you, mean, did, you mean the title? Yeah. How did the lesbians know to go read this book? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, am I allowed to ask that question? Wait, I, was it just a nonsense, um, 
Was it just a nonsense title? No, I think, okay. well, there's a little bit of dispute. Phyllis says that it refers to uh, Lot's wife and the suggestion that we should not look back, but we move forward. But I had also read, maybe in one of the biographies of Patricia Highsmith, that Salt refers in some way in the book. There might be a passage in the book. It's very elusive. It's not spelled out to just flavor, like <clears throat> which sounds almost sort of reductive in a way because there's so much more at stake than just flavor. But it's you know the price of flavor in your life or the cost of having a full life, basically, I think is suggested by the title. But I think lesbians just, you know, there was limited lesbian fiction available at the time, and this was this was printed ultimately published by a small press under a pseudonym. Uh, she shopped it around with her normal publisher, Harper's, but they didn't want to. They were no one would touch it, and so she agreed to publish it under another name, Claire Morgan, and it was it stayed a very well known and very well loved piece of lesbian fiction. For until the 1980s, when Patricia Highsmith published it under her own name before she passed away, and I think it was called Carol when it came out yeah, again. That's, yeah, I, I see that. <clears throat> um, but it must have been reviewed so that people would know what it was all about. I guess. Yeah. No, I think they talked about it, and it was distinguished by the fact that it had this ending that was not a typical ending for a piece of lesbian fiction. Even relatively underground fiction, they usually had to have a punishing ending where the characters were, their behavior was corrected or somebody kills themselves or is sent to a sanitarium or whatever the case. And this had a very different kind of ending. Well, I remember when, um, when you were shooting and I was getting, was lucky enough to watch, um, dailies being, talking to you on the phone and thinking like, Todd, you know, no one's going to forgive her that mink coat, even maybe more than um, that she left her daughter. Like, you, you have to be careful about the mink coat. <laughs> and um, and um, I guess it it really, and then, I don't know, it gets, the scenes get put together and this, um, you know, how Kate plays the character with all this poise next to Rooney's, rawness um or Therese's rawness um it really had to be that way but it is like a brave thing on the part of you <laughs> and Kate I think to just sort of <clears throat> plow ahead with this um I mean it's a it's a big idea to leave your kid behind and um and um her sort of being wrapped in her in the wealth of her situation and um so but you just did you question it along the way, or you just stayed the course? Do you mean you, literally the scene where she's leaving the lawyer's office, or do you just mean through as a general? Throughout. No, in the lawyer's office, she's not wearing the mask. She is not exactly. <laughs> no, she's wearing that other coat. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, throughout, just the whole idea of um, uh, not uh, letting her sort of be that person that's not easy to get to and not easy to um, side with necessarily. Right. Um, I mean, I ultimately do when the movie's put together, but I, when seeing it in parts, I didn't know that I would. But right. you were um, very steadfast in it, and I'm just wondering, like, when you're in the thick of it, did you and um, Kate 
I mean, did you guys have those fears about her or you um, just no, sort of because, keep on? Well, I think one thing that's, I think, an important thing to try to dispense with, and we did, is is that they don't have to be necessarily well-liked, these women, for you to feel for them, for you to care about them, and for you to grapple yourself with the situation, the, the particular historical moment that they find themselves in and, and this, and this complicated desire that they have and how they're going to express it. And I, I really admire, I think both, I mean, I, I have to say this is something that draws me to a lot of the actors I've worked with over the years and it's absolutely true for, for Rooney and Kate is likability is not a motivating force in the roles that they play. And so they will risk you know, difficult and, you know, situations, outcomes. But even more than that, I think a lack of accessibility to the viewer, which both of them navigate in this film in very interesting ways. Because, because they, they never really tell you, we never get all warm and fuzzy with these characters. You know, there's a, there's a distance that's, maintained and there's a distance is navigated from who is really in the more um, vulnerable position in love and maybe even the more amorous position in love and that throughout much of the film that is Therese and that changes toward the end of the film but I still feel and we talked about this a lot that the there you know we bring a certain new era of parenting um, kind of assumptions about what good parenting is and to, to this period that I think might have been a little that was just different about what we think parents should do and how much they sacrifice for their kids and I think um, it's a it's a really really complicated situation I think Carol by at that point in the story saying that Harge should maintain custody is also saying but the condition of that is that I get access to my daughter on my own terms when I want it. And if you don't give me that, I'll take you to court. And the status, your status, your social standing, your, you know, your power, your dominance are all at risk as a result. And, and, um, Kyle Chandler does so much with his, just his body and his face throughout the movie with so, such an economy of, uh, dialogue on his part. Um, I'm not sure exactly how to frame the question, but, um, I'm a, as you know, a big admirer of just how your films are constructed and, um, the sort of, um, just the way the, the way the actors move through a frame and the way the frame itself works with the sound design and how you're able to get across so much um, uh, through just the filmmaking <laughs> and, and um, visually and, you know, sonically. And I, um, could you just talk a little bit about how you, your process of getting to that, um, in this case with Ed Lockman probably some of the time and... Um, well, this was a very different um, 
this kind of had a language of its own, Carol, that was diff- quite, I, people ask me about Far From Heaven, a film I made that Ed also shot, the first film of mine that Ed shot, uh, that also was set in the 1950s, also deals with, um, a homosexual relationship and a marriage and it, and its, and its repercussions. But they, in terms of language, cinematic language and style, they really, I, I find couldn't, could, you know, are such distinct and different films. And they, and that one really was very consciously quoting and looking at the language of movies from the 50s, particularly Douglas Sirk and particularly the sort of high point of the domestic melodrama. And this one, we really were looking other places. I think partly it started with that novel <clears throat> and the whole question of point of view. The whole question of who is looking at who, so that that whole idea of framing, um, setting up so many frames through glass, through windows, through reflections, keep, maybe at some level, we hoped, you know, making you consider the act of looking as something that is not always uncomplicated or unrooted uh, in a, in desire, you know, the desire to kind of get through that filter or that reflection or that blockade or whatever it is. So we looked at uh, photography from the period. We looked more at uh, the kind of almost uh, soiled palette of the color process in the at this time, early 50s New York City, color co- the color process itself that was really distinct and interesting. And a lot of filmmakers, like some people may know the work of Saul Leiter, who was a mid-century New York-based uh, photographer with a great sense of the abstract, a tendency toward shoot through, shooting through glass and windows. But also a lot of really amazing women, I didn't really know this until I got into the research, who were behind the lens of the camera as well, doing photojournalism and art photography. People like Ruth Orkin, Helen Levitt, Esther Bubbly and Vivian Meyer, somebody who has been more recently, whose work has been more recently these, discovered. These are wives of great photographers. These are the the women way behind the the I men. Uh, no, they were really no. In fact, Ruth Orkin is so such an interesting case because she was she did have a partner, a male partner, uh, Morris Engel, who was a doc- yes. Partners. Well, they were married, oh, I and I met that, their daughter the other oh. night. Wow. <laughs> and um, they made docudramas, docudramas together. Uh, the best known is probably a film called Little Fugitive from 1954 or 53, about a little boy who runs off to Coney Island. And they used some semi-actors, but mostly real people, real locations, natural light, shooting around New York City. And there was one called Lovers and Lollipops that we looked at for Carol because the locations were more relevant to this story. And, um, but they were, a, they were a team and they get co-directing credit for those films, which I didn't know either. It's because they're called the Morse Ingle films. <laughs> That's why you didn't know. <laughs> that is why. <laughs> um, so should we, um, see if you all have some, um, questions for Todd? Yes, I'll, I'll just repeat your question so we can. Hi, how do you work with your actors, Todd? Uh, we uh, it depends on on the film, the schedule, and the actor. But in this case, we um, had the time. We built the time in both 
Kate and Rooney love that, love to rehearse and spend time together around the table, going through the scenes, talking about the material. We had Sarah Paulson and Kyle around, Jake Lacey, who plays Richard, Therese's boyfriend. Um, and it was so great. I, I love this. And there are some actors I work, I've worked with who don't like, don't like to rehearse. And sometimes I have to kind of trick them into it and say, we're doing a, a blocking rehearsal or I just want to see, you know, we'll, we'll block some stuff out on the set and see what it looks like. But Kate and Rudy really, really enjoyed it. And, um, and what was interesting is I think this, this process of, eliminating uh, language and dialogue that was not necessary, which sort of started with my working with Phyllis on the script, continued in the, in the rehearsal process with the actors. And I would, I would almost be amazed when Rooney would say, does she really need to say this? Would it be, wouldn't it be more potent if it, if it was somehow not said? And that, it isn't always what you think of actors, you know, going for, but they did. And, th and that same process, I think, continued all the way through to the scoring of the film with Carter Burwell, where simple, the simpler themes he came up with carried more emotional, um, had a stronger impact, I think, in the end. And we all sort of felt that way. It kind of all it was nice that we felt we were sort of in the same, on the same page. Oh, um, which city uh, did you shoot in for the fifties? Yeah. Uh, proudly, we. Sh I'm so I love uh, you know, since putting out the word, we shot the film in Cincinnati, Ohio, and um, it was such a great experience. It was really a. Um, I visited Cincinnati in the early nineties, so it had been a long, long time. Um, <clears throat> But it's a city that really had architectural integrity intact. It had the kind of tired blocks. We literally shot some scenes in Carroll with existing signage for early 50s New York. I mean, Judy Becker, the production designer, and I were like, wow, this is such a special place. The extras were lovely. The day players were were really terrific. So it was a great experience. Oh, yeah, the um the extra, there's so many great faces yeah. uh, throughout yeah. the film. Nobody feels extra ever. Everybody just feels they so were part so, of you it. don't always really expect amazing. it. You know, I usually I'm sure many people have worked with union extras in LA or New York and they're seasoned and experienced, but I I was so they, these these people were so comfortable in their skin. It was really it was really great. The, the questions about where he got the cars, uh, for the movie. They came from wherever we could get them. I mean, we had a limited budget. We had great prop, prop people on the film. And we just did the very best with the resources that we had. And so there, yes, there are car collectors in, in Ohio and Cleveland maybe probably had a bigger, I forget exactly where the bulk of them came, but, but, uh, but they were great. And with a film like this, you know, you get, period cars and they come to you perfect in perfect condition all shiny clean and we had to kind of gently distress them so they looked more real and spattered with rain and dust and stuff like that but Rooney is uh reminding him of Audrey Hepburn is that yes it comes up a lot it was not an intentional uh thing um 
and and it's personally, I think of Gene Simmons even more than Audrey Hepburn at times with her. If I had to pick somebody, she's a little less well known today than than Audrey Hepburn. But uh, you know, Rooney transforms as Therese through the course of the film, and her her more poised and mature look that ends sort of bookends the the structure. Um, definitely have that that elegance, her gorgeous neck and uh, and the shorter cut and all of that. But uh, but it was a, but it was you know really about watching that change and watching her mature and sort of grow up in front of your, our eyes as a character. Interesting. Um, he's wondering about the photographs that appear in the film and uh, were those taken specifically? Who took those? They come the shots of Kate uh, that that Therese, the shots of Carol that T Therese takes were sh were shot by our stills photographer. Um, although he did, I think we had him use thirty five film for them. Um, but interestingly, Ed Ed Lockman had spent a like a semester in a college in Ohio <coughs> in the early late or in the early 70s i think and he had a sort of a mentor figure who was a photographer i don't remember if he was a teacher at the school i think it was a i think it was aurora college but i might have it wrong it was a small co college and he tracked this guy down and he came this guy came to us in cincinnati with with all of this unexposed film um so it was sort of like our own Vivian Meyer collection of stuff that had never been printed before. And a lot of it from the, it wasn't exactly the 50, it wasn't as early as the exact years of Carol. It was like the early 60s though. So it was some pretty rare finds that we were able to use. So yeah, that was a kind of fortuitous um, connection. Yeah. All right, I'm rewarding that just because I just for simplicity I guess um, because I kind of have something like that written down also just the question of whose story it was and um, if it was did you start out with it being equally sort of going back flowing back and forth between uh, Therese and Carol or was it as you were saying like Carol's kind of the object of Therese's yeah to me it was always uh, ter more Therese's story than Carol's, that Carol really was the object of desire, and um, and again, the the love stories that I looked at on film that that and and I, the first one I thought of was Brief Encounter, uh, the beautiful David Lean film from the forties, which influenced the a structural change in the script, and the reason Brief Encounter is the story of a is a married man and woman who meet. And uh, have a, uh, a sort of fall in love, but it's not really consummated. But it disrupts their lives. The way the film starts is that very, very much like Carol, through the eyes of a sort of secondary characters, and you find uh, Celia Johnson and Trevor Howard in the background of a refreshment stand in a refreshment room in a train station, and you go, "Oh wow, there aren't they the stars of the movie." And their conversation is interrupted by a gossiping character who recognizes Laura, the woman. 
and you realize something's been interrupted of some importance, but you don't know what it is. And you, we go home with Celia Johnson, and then her un- voiceover begins to come out when she sits opposite her husband who turns on the radio and does the crossword puzzle. And the whole story is recounted. And we come back at the, through the whole story to that same conversation, and we understand its meaning. And what I loved about Brief Encounter, and among many things, is that it sort of sets up that question, whose story is this? And you finally learn that it's hers. Are you ever alone with him? With Trevor Howard? Yeah. Are there scenes with, I can't remember. I don't think you are. I think it's all, because it's all conducted through her voiceover, so I don't think there's ever a scene that you're alone with him in. With Carol, yes, there are scenes that we are alone with Carol, but but I still think the you know we still want like when we first have gain access to Carol's world, it's when the gloves are sent back to her from Therese, and so we go with the the mail truck into her world, and it opens it it inaugurates access to Carol. But for the most part, we're still kind of on the side of Therese, who's the vulnerable one, until their statuses change. I felt. What I thought was interesting is by the time you come back at the end of the film for, to that same conversation, Carol's the one who is coming to Therese with her heart on her sleeve, sort of stripped naked and asking for her love. And, and Therese says no. Um, but it all sort of, to me, the real shift happens at that point toward the end of the film where Carol is in the cab looking out and she sees Therese through the glass in the world, occupying her life, and she does Therese doesn't see Carol. And at that point, you know, you realize that something has really changed. And that's when Carol is literally on her way to the lawyer's office for that that penultimate scene with about over custody. Um, how did the film come to you through uh, Sandy Powell? And oh, it didn't come to me through Sandy. Sandy just told me that. She said, oh, I don't really know. I mean, I think because most of my films, I've all my films, until Carol, I've written and developed myself. And I've known Liz Carlson, the, the really hands-on producer of this film, for so many years, probably since the mid-'80s, and <laughs> through Christine Vashon, my producer partner. And... um. And I think Liz probably just, I mean, Liz knew, Liz and Christine talk almost every day. So Liz always knew what I was working on and when and what scripts I was writing and da da da. This started like in 1997, I think this, Phyllis Nagy wrote the first adaptation of, of Carol that many years ago. And it, that was with a different producer before Liz Carlson came on board. So really the longest prehistory begins with the screenwriter and they, the rights, reverted back to the the rights holder for Patricia Highsmith. Liz came back on board, kind of resurrected the rights, tried to pull Phyllis back into the process. Phyllis was resistant at first. And then Liz said, no, I really, we have to make this movie, Phyllis. And if you don't, if I don't do it with you, I'll do it with somebody else. Phyllis was like, okay. And, uh, and I, I don't really know who the directors were that they went to at different stages. Kate got on board at a certain point. But I, Sandy and I did this appearance at the Museum of the Moving Image for my film Far From Heaven. And she'd been working with Scorsese on a bunch of films. And she said, uh, 
I think I have a frock film coming up. And uh, it was this. And um, but she said it was a lesbian love story that that Liz is producing with Kate in the lead role, and I was like, mm, "That sounds good." I remember <laughs> you saying, really? "Oh, I'm jealous of that project," yeah. and then somehow, of course, yeah. it became yours. <laughs> <laughs> That's how it really works. <laughs> um, but it is amazing that it doesn't feel like a project that's had a bunch of hands on it for as long as it's been around, and that's probably because it just kept Phyllis had such a was a through line for so long. It did. I have to say the first draft of the script I read, I loved it. I thought it was beautifully done, but I also felt that thing that happens when things have been kicking around for a while and you're trying to appeal to financiers. There was something a little defanged about it. And when I talked to Phyllis, she was like, I said, there's a lot of tension in the book between the two women. And I really loved that. I thought be really cool to get more of that back in the script and she said thank you because she felt she'd been sort of making it more congenial in the hopes of getting it financed over. and you can just that happens and you can tell so she kind of went back to some of her earlier instincts with the adaptation and um so yeah it was yeah she was pleased i think i think we had a good uh well, we have one more question should i um <laughs> as i've said at other Q&As. Oh, yeah, why don't you have any bullets in the it's gun? It's a lesbian gun. <laughs> um, we, our idea was that it, that it was jammed. But it's hard to read it that way. Yeah, I know. It kind of reads like it's not, it's not loaded. Same thing. Who'd be prepared. I mean, I think it's an, a, it's an afterthought that she brings it at all. It's really not a big plot point, and um, Harge has a sort of a vanity gun in the house in the book, and Carol just throws it into her suitcase, being two women alone on the road and not really knowing what they're facing and what the outcome is. It was sort of an afterthought. But as Chekhov says, when there's a gun in a, in a film, you, you know it's going to, right? It has to fire. Also, you being a big NRA person. Exactly. That you. <laughs> um, uh, Todd, thank you so Killer. much. It's a beautiful thank you, film. Thank you for doing yeah. this. Thanks yeah. so much, you guys, for sticking around. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed listening. You can watch a video of this and many other director Q&As on YouTube or on our website at DGA dot org slash crafts slash director hyphen qa if you're enjoying the director's cut please subscribe to it on itunes or our soundcloud page so you won't miss an episode over the next few weeks we will have episodes covering several more oscar nominated films so be sure to check them out as they arrive we hope you hear from us soon this podcast is produced by the directors guild of america Music is by Dan Wally.